Welcome to the EY CEO Outlook podcast series, where our host, Richard Curran, talks to some of Ireland's leading CEOs about leadership, lessons learned, and their future business plans. I'm Graeme Reed, Partner and Head of Markets at EY. In this episode, we welcome Stephen O'Leary, Managing Director of Olitico, a social media monitoring business. Analyzing over 70 billion social media assets, Olitico helps businesses keep an ear to the ground and understand their online sentiment related to both their business and to areas of focus. Considering the impact social media has on all our lives, both personally and professionally, Stephen's insights are particularly interesting at this moment. So over to you, Richard. Thanks, Graham, And we hope you are enjoying this podcast series of interviews with CEOs. And thanks for listening to the EY Podcast CEO Outlook series. If you like what you've heard, hit follow or subscribe and leave a review. And do subscribe because we've lots more big interviews with industry leaders in the weeks ahead. Well, my next guest on this episode is Stephen O'Leary, founder and CEO of Olitico. Stephen is originally from Cork City and he started the business in 2009. If you're running a business and you want to know what is being said about your firm on social media, what that means or might mean, and also how your social media campaigns are working, whether they're working effectively or not really at all, Stephen seems to be the man to call. Stephen, uh, you track and analyse a company's life on social media channels. Is, is that the best way to put it? It is, yeah. Uh, we, tell, we tell our clients what's being said about them on the internet is, is how we think about it. And... Really, that can be quite varied in so much as people have conversations publicly in lots of different places and our clients are interested in lots of different things. So it's it's not just what's being said about them, but they're interested quite often in their competitors, maybe their clients, the industry more broadly, sometimes a topic that they feel passionately about, a sponsorship. There's there's a wide array of things that people are interested in. And, um, and our clients come to us when they want to understand that. So there are certain triggers maybe for them as well. They might have a, a specific thing they want to look at or analyse or, or, or something of the moment, as opposed to just a general ongoing forever view, you know? Absolutely. And, and I mean, we tend to divide our clients' needs into two. So they'll either have a tactical or a strategic need. Uh, and the tactical is usually the in the moment need. That's when they need information in real time on something that is usually very important, possibly a breaking news story. And then the more strategic is the end of day, end of week, end of month, end of quarter, end of year report, maybe post campaign, where they want insights. They want to see what the pattern looked like, what was the trend, what's changing, what's moving, and does that give us any indication of what's going to happen in the future? Sometimes are they spooked when they come to you about something? Sometimes. Yeah, I mean, obviously the nature of our job is to listen to what the public talk about. And if something goes wrong, the public will talk about that. Um, Because one of the things about social media, it really turned on its head, you know, the old adage that there's no such thing as bad publicity. But with social media, we know, yes, there is such a thing as bad publicity. There is. And the key thing is that Olitico can't fix the problem. So we're not the people you call to fix something, but we are the people you call when you want to understand what the conversation looks like. And so we give our clients the information they need, the, the kind of the feeling of what's going on. And that can be used sometimes too. It can be used to say, well, actually, this isn't as big as you think it is. So this was big maybe for 60 minutes, but actually now the news cycle is so fast 
that that story has 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 moved on. And sometimes that's our job. It's to let our clients tell their colleagues, their peers, their management, actually hang tough here a minute. This this was big for an hour, but now it's now it's okay. So it gives them a bit of perspective on it as well. How do you do that? So let's say you, you want to monitor social media activity in relation to a particular topic, a particular firm, whatever it is. What do you do and then what do you give to the client? The easiest way of thinking about it is through keyword search. So we would license enterprise software and we have built proprietary software and we use that combination to build searches and those searches look for public conversations. So Twitter is an extremely public network, for example. Uh, Reddit would be a very public network. There would be elements of small elements of Facebook, elements of Instagram, LinkedIn. There's a variety of different places where these conversations happen. So the first job is to to find the information in, in real time. And then once you have it, you need to do a, a range of different things before it gets to the client. So, you know, we think of these as, as pillars of what we do. So the data has to be categorized. You have to label it correctly. It needs to be analyzed. Sometimes it needs to be visualized and then you need to narrate. You need to tell the story. And that can be as simple as an email alert just to tell a person you've been mentioned by this very important account about this topic. And then sometimes it can be a 100 page report on a, on a topic like sustainability. Social media, it's interesting because it's, it's your bread and butter in that sense, but you're not a, a social media company. So do you end up, do you end up defending social media? You, ha- you have this relationship with social media that it's an important part of your business, but you're not in the social media business. Do you end up defending social media from critics? I think we're able to take a balanced view. So we know, and what makes the headlines usually is when it goes wrong. The headline stories are when something terrible happens on a social network. And it does. You know, social networks are, are no different to probably any other area of communication in that there will be places where, you know, it's it's used poorly, it's used badly, it's um, used for um, the wrong purposes. But the nature of listening to as much public conversation as we do is that we also see the good. And we see so much good. And we see social media being used for good. And and I sometimes talk about this not so much in the very obvious good, but the simple things of someone having a problem, a customer having a problem, going onto a social network, contacting a company, and the company responding and fixing the problem. That seems very routine, but the network enables it. You know, where once they would have maybe called and been on hold. Now they can tweet, go about whatever it is they're doing, and wait for the reply. And if the reply comes in and fixes the problem, well, we would see that as a as a good thing. Elon Musk and his bid for Twitter has made massive headlines. First of all, do you have a view, regardless of, of what happens, whether the deal comes off or it doesn't come off, do you have a view about whether Elon Musk would be good for Twitter, good for Elon Musk, or both, or neither? Uh, I think there's no question that it's good for Elon Musk. Um, certainly in so much as it gives him a platform with incredible reach and influence. Now, there's questions as to whether or not those benefits extend to his other businesses. And certainly what we've seen recently is questions about the impact this may have on Tesla, for example. Is it good for Twitter? Is it good for us as users of the social platform? That comes down to one keyword in my mind, and that's trust. Do you trust Elon Musk? If you trust him then this is good. It's going to uh, improve the platform. 
we know what kind of an entrepreneur he is. We know how visionary he is. We know the businesses he has built. And if you take a positive view of that, then he can grow Twitter, make it sustainable uh, and maybe enhance it from what it already is. If you don't trust Musk, then you probably worry about the rules and regulations that he may implement around a network like Twitter. One of the things that's sometimes hard to grasp is just how complicated it is to moderate a social network. And we know the social networks get a lot wrong and they're certainly not there yet. But Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, countless others invest millions, if not billions, in trying to ensure that the platforms are in some way regulated that a lot of the things that shouldn't appear online don't appear online, that hate speech, for example, is reported and removed. And actually, a lot of the things that shock us on social networks, nine out of 10 of those things never make it up in the first place because so much has been invested both in algorithms, software to to stop it before it's said, but also human moderation, tens of thousands of people whose job it is to check this content. And there is still, you know, a very strong argument that says that that kind of self-regulation and that expenditure that big companies are making on moderation and, and having eyes and ears over stuff isn't enough and that they could or should do more. So therefore, regulators need to step in and we have we have this new Digital Services Act, which is going to, you know, for in Europe anyway, it's just going to force uh, social media platforms and online platforms of all kinds to to take greater responsibility for that. Just to go back to the Musk thing, he would like, and he has in, in, indicated that, you know, free speech is so important, he would like to maybe uh, ease up on some of the moderation to allow as much stuff out there as possible. Yet, it looks as if international governments are poised to to move in the opposite direction. And if he moves in the opposite direction because he's forced to regulation and there has to be greater controls and greater watch, that costs more money. So there's a sort of a, an undermining of the business case there, isn't there? Yeah, but is this, is this about money? I mean, it doesn't feel like it. Uh, you know, if we look at the timeline here, a week prior to announcing that he was um, going to take over Twitter, Musk earned close to 23 billion in an options package from from Tesla. You know, when you get to those levels of income and an estimated worth of 200 billion or whatever the figure is today, because it fluctuates from day to day with the share price of, of Tesla, really, Musk could buy Twitter and could shut it down, take no money from it at all and still be an extremely wealthy individual. So I think... But is that good for Twitter or bad for Twitter? Shutting down Twitter will be bad. I mean, I, I think... For, but having someone for whom the money doesn't matter, owning it. Well, I suppose we've got to look through history, right? So this isn't the first time we've been confronted with this. You know, for centuries, billionaires, millionaires, the wealthy elite have bought media organizations, you know, whether that's a newspaper or a TV station, whatever it might be, they've, they've bought things that um, control the narrative, that, that share the news. So, and we've seen good in that. We know that some, for example, traditional media models are coming under pressure. We know the newspaper industry, for example, is struggling with um, how, to, how to make money and how to survive, some, some will say. And sometimes having a, a wealthy benefactor can help. So, it's certainly not all bad, but it's so early in the story. And in truth, 
it'll be interesting how this podcast ages because I have a feeling that it's not that hard to imagine a situation where the Musk deal for all the announcements and fanfare doesn't come to pass. We've seen this in the past. We've seen him make statements and we've heard there's a break clause and we've heard the term a billion dollars is in there too. But again, in the context of 200 billion, well, maybe that's something you can afford to do. Now, I want to go back to the start to yourself uh, growing up in Cork City. Cork City. And when you were a kid growing up, were you interested in school? Were you interested in university? What did you want to be when you would grow up? What was in your head? Really interested in school. I enjoyed it and really enjoyed the social element of school. I have this distinct memory of enjoying it as an environment. Loved learning, had great teachers. My mum's a Montessori teacher, or was a Montessori teacher. And so from a really young age, I could see, you know, how much fun education could be. And uh, and was very lucky. You know, when you grow up in that kind of an environment, it predisposes you really well to, to going to school. And yeah, great teachers, good classmates. Um, so I enjoyed school. But I enjoyed things outside of school too, um, sport in particular. And, uh, you know, as a teenager, I started to, to get a real interest in golf. So... By my mid-teens, I certainly wasn't sure of what I wanted to study. I probably felt that sport would hopefully play some sort of a role, although I also realised I wasn't going to be a sporting superstar. So it was probably at that stage beginning to see, well, were there opportunities around the fringes? So I caddied, for example, in the old Hedekin Sale. That was my summer job for three or four years. And, and did you, you must have played a lot of golf then, did you? Were you good at it? I was okay. I mean, again, I was never as good as some of my friends who had no ambitions to go professional. So I knew where I was uh, and I knew the level I was at. And I don't think it was a lack of ambition. I think it was a realisation that, you know, this was something I enjoyed, but I didn't really feel it could be my profession. But I could see through caddying and um, through the broader golf industry that there were tons of other opportunities potentially in that space and that you wouldn't necessarily have to be the player, right? There's a finite number of professional players, but there is thousands of people who work outside of that. And I loved the idea of being inside the ropes. And I don't mean just on a golf course inside the ropes, just being inside the ropes in general. You know, the people who were where the audience were looking. So whether that was... Where the action, whatever kind of action it might be, is going on. Exactly that. So you you uh, studied journalism, you went into journalism. Was that part of that, that sense of journalists get to get inside the ropes, even if they're not participants in what's going on? It was, absolutely, that they were the ones who were there and got to ask the questions and got the access and got to see things, I suppose, that seemed constantly interesting. Um, now, the path wasn't linear, so it wasn't school went great, university went great, I mean, I was one of those students who on Leaving Cert Results Day got the letter to say, you failed to meet the minimum requirements for any of your courses. You can't go to college. And I remember, like, I distinctly remember going and collecting that piece of paper and, you know, having to talk to my parents afterwards and that general sense of like, oh my God, this is just, this is just not good news. What did they say? They were incredibly supportive. Um, My parents have an incredible sense of perspective. Um, and a belief in things working out and reasoning. They would have an awful lot of faith uh, and belief, uh, not just in me and my sister as their kids, but just in in the world and how things will work out. So 
they, you know, they were disappointed, as was I, but they realized, okay, look, this is just something that potentially offers an opportunity. So, you know, you're still going to go to college, but maybe it'll be a year later. So what are you going to spend your year doing? And that gave me an opportunity to to go out, to look, to maybe attend more college open days. And, and that's the reason why instead of going to UCC, which is what the plan was, that I, you know, ended up going to a Griffith College open day and found journalism as a course and went, OK, that's that's what I want to do. And you enjoyed that. It's interesting what you say about your parents. Your mother was a Montessori teacher. Was your dad involved in business at all? And thinking about where that business brain or energy came from in you? No, not as an entrepreneur. I mean, my mum, it, it's probably that side in so much as my mum set up her own Montessori school. So she was an entrepreneur and um, had to had to build that business and had teams to manage and clients or parents uh, to deal with too. So, you know, it was never something that was very much talked about at home. We weren't, I certainly wouldn't call us like a business family of any kind. Um, and I don't think even going to college I, I was visioning, I had no vision of setting up my own business. That was not the plan. That was something that came later. But it's interesting you talk about that kind of a, a positive attitude that you would have got from your parents. You know, it's like a glass half full view, which I always think that people in business, if, you, if you're a glass half full person, you'll do well in business. And if you're a glass half empty person, you'll do well in journalism. Yeah, and I probably transitioned from one to the other um, or maybe realised that that's why I wasn't going to be a good journalist, potentially. Um, I loved studying it. Um, Griffith College was a great college to study in. And again, excellent lecturers, great classmates who have gone on to incredible and diverse success. You know, it's fascinating to look at the people who were my peers and my classmates and what they're doing now, not just in Ireland, but all over the world. So... I, you know, right place, right time for me in terms of, of college. So you worked for a while in the Irish Examiner and then you moved into a different a different role, really, altogether, a different kind of company. Yeah, so I, you know, I got the, the near dream job, right? So national newspaper, straight out of college, sub-editing, um, you know, doing what I had studied and what I'd always wanted to do back in Cork, obviously great too. And home, I was home about a year, a little under. And I think what I realized was that the element I missed, and it was the, it was where sport came back in, was that in, in journalism or, or sub-editing, as the job was then, it was very hard to measure or quantify your success. It's very hard to tell what a good day or a bad day looked like. You were a job to do and a supportive boss who would say to you, you've done a good job. But it was really difficult to know how good that was. You know, it felt like there was a lot of subjectivity and it was really hard to measure. And what emerged was a job that was titled International Management Trainee. It turned out to be a sales job. Um, But I took it and what it had that I didn't realize properly I needed at the time was it had targets. So it was a sales job and you could measure your success. It was black and white. You know the score in real time. All the time. Yeah, you had monthlies, you had quarterlies, there were clients you had to target and, you know, if you won the business, then you you succeeded. Software that allowed you to monitor media coverage. So essentially what the company did was they sold a a platform that allowed you to put keywords in and track what the, the media were saying about you. And it was a precursor to social media monitoring, really. But 
it was a fascinating couple of years. And a great introduction to that area for you. Kind of almost accidentally, really. Very accidental. Um, and I think what was most valuable was it taught me how to sell because I would never have described myself as a natural salesperson, probably still wouldn't describe myself as one. But what I realized was over the course of the two years is there's lots of different ways you can sell. So I went in and looked at my peers and looked at those who succeeded very early in the job and they were great salespeople. Like they were so slick, you know, and they could really sell you anything, right? They were selling this at the time, but they could have sold anything. And I saw them succeed. I saw them hit targets. Yeah, I saw all these kind of good things happen. And I was not, again, on that trajectory. It, you know, I sometimes kind of think of the tortoise and the hare an awful lot when I, I think about where uh, my ventures go. But it clicked. And what happened was I realized that you could sell in a consultative way. So if you understood the product really well, if you got really, really, really good at it, then you could show that value to a client. And that's what I realized. That's what I realized I needed to do. If I understood the product inside out and could find all the ways in which it could add value for a client, then I didn't have to sell hard. I just had to demonstrate, show that value. And it sold itself. Exactly. And where did the idea for Alitico come from? Well, obviously from the, the software, but at some point you decided to, to set up a company. Over the course of the two years selling the software, I realized that there were gaps, problems that the software didn't solve. And the number one problem was you would demonstrate the software, as I would do. The client would say, that looks amazing. They would buy the software. They would take it in-house. They would use it intensively for a couple of weeks, maybe a month in a year-long license, but then slowly they would use it less. And when it came around to renewal time, they'd say, yeah, it looked great when you demonstrated it to us. And we did use it at the start. But then we got busy and then we didn't use it too much. And now it doesn't feel very up to date and we're not going to renew. And I heard a lot of this. And my job was not to renew clients. My job was to, to sell the software. But you hear it again and again and again. And I started to ask questions of it. And it appeared that the problem was the using of the software. They loved what it did, but they just didn't have the resource or time internally to make it work for them. So I said, if this was a service, would you buy it as a service? And they were like, absolutely. You know, do you offer that? And we were like, no. You know, the, and the company I worked for was a, a SaaS company. I mean, it was software as a service, not software and a service. And so they were making tons of money. The model was good. The model was not use the software on behalf of a client. So I brought it as an idea and they said, look, that's a, a nice idea, but that's not the, the trajectory we're on right now. So you we, decided to go it alone then? There was a gap. I did, not immediately. What happened was I had sold the software to a sports management company. And in the course of that process, the sports management company had said, well, we represent professional golfers on the European tour and the PGA tour. Uh, how would you like to come be an agent? So we returned to my days down the old head and back to golf again. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I had seen Jerry Maguire. Right. So I knew I knew what being a sports agent was all about. Um, it was 2008. Late 07, what, was it like late. Jerry Maguire? It was nothing like Jerry Maguire. Um, you know, there was a goldfish somewhere, I think, along the way. But ultimately, it was an amazing experience, if only to realize yet again, this probably is not the job for me. Um, so I got to, you know, I got to travel a little bit 
Um, I got to work with some really interesting professional players. Like I, who? Where, where did you go? Who did you meet or work with? So th- there's a few things that stand out. Um, we went to the PGA Championship in Wentworth, which is an amazing tournament. And to see from the Monday of a tournament how that plays out is really interesting. You know, I was used to the Thursday to the Sunday on TV, but watching the setup, watching what goes in, watching what the players go through, um, everything that goes around that was really exciting. There's a huge um, event in Florida, um, the PGA show, which I went to as well, which again was just, it was fascinating to see the tens of thousands of companies that operate in the golf environment, way beyond the traditional ones that you think of. So I got to see some of the world. I got to meet interesting people. But again, over the course of the year, what happened was a number of my former clients from the software company got in touch and said, we're not renewing our software license. And so I said, well, I, I don't actually work there anymore. And they said, well, we still have a need. And I heard that two or three times. And it kind of coincided with realizing again that maybe sports agency land was for me. We were entering a recession. Uh, the economy was was um, was kind of under a huge amount of pressure. This was when the banks were being bailed out. Two thousand nine, grim time. Yeah, and so with um, with no savings, uh, no plan, um, no experience in running a business, I decided. Well, look, the need exists. There's a gap. Um, I'm going to give this a go and. That's essentially when Olitico began. Did it take you long to get your first client? Was it easy, difficult? First client was super easy, um, which was both good and bad. So first client I had before I even started, one of those companies that called said, look, we'll commit now. We'll do this. And I was like, great. Okay, so that was the catalyst. You know, I invested in my own piece of software, licensed something and decided, okay, I'm going to set up, uh, we'll go. It was O'Leary Analytics originally, that was the, the name. And so I was like, okay, well, I've got one. You know, and my, my idea was, look, maybe I'll get 10. I might work two or three days a week. Maybe I'll learn a language. I'll do a bit of volunteering, maybe travel. Um, I mean, the naivety when I look back now is, um, is incredible. And obviously the reality was entirely different. You know, I started calling people and they were saying, no, I'm afraid we're cutting all our budgets for everything right now. You know, we're, we're entering a, a fairly major recession. There's no way we can afford that kind of a service. So, again, you know, I, I took a part-time job waiting tables because I'd done that through college to make ends meet. But four, five months into the business, I had to call my parents and tell them I can't afford to pay the rent on the room I'm renting in Dublin and I'm trying to decide now whether I should actually just stop this and get a, get a different job or, or keep going. And my parents said, keep going. You know, you're only five months in. You know, we'll cover your rent for a couple of months. Um, let's see how this goes. And, you know, you know, stick with this for a little while. You know, this is not, you know, this is a bump. And so... Tough start, though. Relatively, right? Yeah. Tough in that I, I didn't have the plan and... Again, that's been a big learning, the importance of planning. It's something that, that you know, I've, I've had to learn over the last 15 years. But the support is what brings you through. The belief, the, the, the trust people have in you. And what happened was we won a big client on a short-term project that essentially gave us cash flow. And that changed everything because it meant a few different things. You pay back your parents, you've got a bit of independence, you've a bit of breathing room, but suddenly every call you make, every outbound sales call isn't, 
I really need you to work with us. It's, I think you should work with us. And you approach it from an entirely different space. The clients hear that. You also now have this marquee client you can point to. And suddenly you get this kind of snowball effect. There's a momentum that builds and it's almost as if they can they can sense that there isn't some desperation down the other end of the phone, that this guy can take us or leave us because he's clearly building up a base. He's, he's, he's got something behind him. Absolutely. And also, it was so new, right? So you think back to 2009, 2010, Instagram didn't exist. Um, Twitter was still relatively young. A catalyst moment in the development of us as an organisation was when... Simon Coveney tweeted and it made the the 6-1 news and was the, a story on Morning Ireland and, and suddenly everyone was saying, what's Twitter? What's this platform where politicians and the media are talking and the public are listening? And it grew, you know, from there. So there was there was this realisation and, and what that also meant was that there was at the time relatively few people who you could ask if you were a journalist about what was going on and relatively few people you could ask, well, what are people saying? We were, I was that person at the time. And that meant that there was an opportunity to grow a brand, to gain some exposure, and we began to, to win clients. And the business has grown since then. When, when you look at social media, social media sceptics might have felt initially that it's, it's descending totally into the world of opinion, um, there's so much nastiness out there from a regulatory point of view instead of being the Wild West at times it's it's more like the Colosseum in terms of how, how people are treated but it isn't going away it is seems to be getting bigger there are issues around regulation when, when you look forward down the road a few years what do you think the social media landscape looks like and how is it different to today? My feeling is the element that will change most is probably around anonymity. So if you look at where some of the biggest problems exist on social networks, it's the idea that you can say anything because there's no consequence. And that can be true if the account is entirely anonymous. So if there's no name attached, then... You feel like you've got a freedom. We hear this term like keyboard warriors, these people who are who are very confident when they're typing, but would never say it face to face to an individual um, if they met them. Um, I don't have the solution to that problem, but it feels like something that the networks are looking at. And it's a balancing act because anonymity can be a very good thing and it can allow for a level of discussion and conversation that can be very positive. And it can allow for a level of honesty. But then also it allows for a whole new level of dishonesty. Yes. Uh, and misinformation is something that, again, the platforms and third party organisations are working really hard to to battle and guard against. I think fundamentally a lot of this comes down to education. The better educated the audiences are and the public are about how social networks operate, about the consequences of their actions, about the fact that even if they're using an anonymous account, if they if they use hate speech or they threaten an individual, then there is every chance that there will be legal consequences to their actions. One of the things that strikes me as somebody who's been in traditional journalism, you know, print and broadcast for nearly 30 years now, 
is that there are all of these checks and balances and social media bypasses all of that. There's a phrase that I think explained it well that I came across which said that not everything I think should be said, not everything I say should be written down and not everything I write down should be published. But social media allows all of those natural uh, checks and balances to be bypassed when you go straight from thought to publication. Yes, and look, I, I think this is one of the reasons why one will never replace the other. You, you need both. And I, I think Twitter, for example, is a great network for breaking news. It's a great place to to hear the news very quickly. But one of the challenges with Twitter is that you don't have the editorial checks and balances that traditional media have. So you can go to Twitter for breaking news, but if you want verified news, you need to go either to a verified publication or the verified account of that publication on a social network. So again, it's not so much the network, it's who you listen to and who you trust on the network is so important. And that's why a verification process can be really, really beneficial. But breaking news is about information. And in a way, social media platforms are the ultimate tool for the dissemination of information really quickly and very directly. So it's, it's a fantastic tool. But somehow they've become more dominated by opinion rather than information. It's becoming, you know what I mean? It, it's more about opinions than facts or, or breaking news. This has happened or this is going to happen. Yeah, and people uh, people want an outlet. They want, I mean, we always want to be heard. Fundamentally, people want to be heard. It's the reason our business exists. You know, we listen to nothing private. It's purely public information because no one tweets and says, don't look at this. You tweet because you want people to, to hear what you're saying. So it's important to give a platform um, to people so that they can express their opinions. But there has to be checks and rules and guards and balances. And again, I mean, I know we've, we've spoken about this, but it's not, it's not a case of there being a magic bullet or an easy way to fix this. But we know that the networks are working on this. And the there is a very strong argument that they are not working hard enough or fast enough or investing enough. But we can see how they're working, what they're doing and where they're investing. And again, it can be difficult. Um, it can be difficult to appreciate the level of effort that's going in because what happens is 90% of the things that should never be published ever get published. They do get blocked, they get stopped. It never makes it but into the light of day. Even with the best will in the world, which, you know, it's questionable whether it's there or not from the, the companies themselves, it's the scale of content. They will say themselves, it's just too big to moderate. So perhaps regulators can say, okay, we will accept that argument. We're going to break you up, break up these businesses. They could, but that doesn't really solve the problem because the problem still, no matter who owns this, the problem will still exist. And I don't think, you know, in some ways, actually, there is an economy of scale when it comes to, you know, moderation. And if you own multiple social networks or you have a very large user base, then what you learn and how to use moderation in one space can be applied right across the board. But what I do think, I, I, what I hope to see is an element where the speed with which once a mistake has been made or something has been said, the recourse there 
um, becomes much faster so that the content is removed in a faster um, or more timely manner and that the account or individual that has posted it, you know, uh, essentially kind of sees that this is something they cannot continue to do and that there are consequences. And, and in truth, we've seen that, you know, we've seen court cases, um, we've seen you know, the police themselves in the UK, for example, will regularly tweet about the fact that they're investigating something that happened on Twitter. So, you know, it gets reported. There is there is steps that can be taken. It's just something that needs far more time and investment. What about politics and political polling? This is a question I want to ask you about because it's interesting. There have been lots of examples where traditional polling hasn't really hit the nail on the head in terms of what outcomes were like. If you're looking at and analysing social media, could you have called from looking at social media, you know, that Donald Trump was going to win, that the Brexit referendum was going to be passed? How, how do those two models compare? You, I, I think it would be a stretch to say you could have predicted Trump's win. And I think you need to be very careful when you draw... Um, comparisons or analysis from, let's say, volumes of conversation or sentiment analysis, which is a... Firstly, because it may be manipulated by bots or whatever, but also amid all of the noise of social media, how do you interpret what that really represents in terms of voting patterns? Yes, and, uh, and where I think the opportunity lies is in not looking at the issue itself, but at looking at the broader conversation. So I think if you had looked at social media in... America, for example, between 2014 and 2016, you would have learned a lot about the things that people were unhappy about, about the dissatisfaction that existed. And you would have seen an awful lot of signs that would suggest actually the circumstances are right here for someone like Donald Trump to be elected. And the same is absolutely true of Brexit. You couldn't have done a poll on Twitter a week out from the Brexit uh, referendum and said, OK, you know, how are you going to vote? There would have been no great insight there. Or if you'd said... Well, you don't even know who you're asking. Exactly. And also even the idea of the phrase, you know, I'm going to vote for Brexit or against it and counting those or support for parties, any of those kind of things. No. But if you looked at the general mood on social networks and you looked at the type of things that people were upset about and people liked there's plenty within that data that would have again have suggested, well, actually, the circumstances are right here, that maybe this is a 50-50. And, and, that and it, would, it would add to the picture, essentially. And that it's too close to call, absolutely. Apart from Politico, you're very involved with the Dublin Chamber. Yes. You're vice president. You're going to be president. Yes, in 2023. Looking forward to that. You, you, you must be one of the youngest presidents. You will be one of the youngest presidents, will you? Yes. So... 250 years of history and I will be the youngest president in 2023, which is surreal in some ways. The Chamber was one of the very first organisations and things that I did and joined when I set up Politico back in 2009. And from day one, they were incredibly supportive. I mean, in sheer practical ways. I mean, I couldn't afford the membership fee at the time. And they said, we'll break it up into monthly installments and we'll support you. You know, we, we want you as a member. And, and you know, when you set up a business, certainly in my case, when you're bootstrapped, 
So when you have no backers, you have no investment, uh, you have no runway, you have no money, right? So you can't afford to do a lot of things. You know, it's kind of beans on toast type stuff, working shifts in a restaurant, all the type of things you do to make ends meet as you're, as you're getting going. But what you do usually have is a lot of time because we didn't have clients. We weren't working out the door. We were trying to hustle and win them. But when you've got time, something like the chamber gives you great opportunities to spend that time really effectively. There'll be no beans on toast when you're president of the chamber. No now. beans <laughs> on toast. That will not be the meal, no. Have you been tempted to look over who past presidents have been over the last 250 years out of curiosity? Yeah, like it's like looking at the past uh, people who've been on this podcast. You know, you get this kind of imposter syndrome when you see people who've, who've kind of held the office and, you know, like, names like the Guinnesses and others like right back through through centuries who've who've been in the position. So, you know, it, it's a huge responsibility. Um, you know, it, it's one that I certainly don't take lightly, but it's also incredibly exciting because Olitico is a micro business. We're a team of nine. And if you look at the history of um, of individuals and the organizations they've represented who've been president of the chamber in the past, you know, the biggest and best companies in the country are represented. And in fact, the Irish operations of the biggest and best global organisations are represented there. Um, you know, you've got Vodafone, Tourism Ireland, AIB, Bank of Ireland. There's so many major corporate organisations that, um, so that have Mixing with the big boys there. On this podcast, Stephen, there's a series of questions that we put to uh, all of our guests. You could call it the, the quick fire round. There are, the, you'd be glad to hear there are no right or wrong answers. <laughs> it's a matter of opinion. So I'll, I'll, I'll throw them at you anyway. The first one is, what CEO or entrepreneur do you most admire and why? This is easy, albeit his title isn't CEO. Um, Jurgen Klopp um, feels to me like a leader like no other. Um, in fact, Alistair Campbell had a piece uh, that he wrote this week where he strongly encouraged Klopp to become a politician because he shows the type of leadership that, that Campbell said politicians are lacking at the moment, particularly in the UK. It'd probably ruin him. <laughs> yeah, I really, as a Liverpool fan, I really hope he doesn't do it. But he, he, he strikes me as just being this incredible individual. And I think the thing that I admire most about him is, is, is twofold. On the one hand, he has this ability to take players who are good and sometimes great and make them even better. So he he's, he develops people in this absolutely incredible way. And he also seems to have an ability to take players who collectively outperform their individual ability and to see how he's brought not just a team, but a club and a city together in the way that he has is is incredible. And um, yeah, he strikes me as being, you know, the epitome of a leader. Your favourite book or film? This was difficult. Um, one of the best um, is Legacy by James Kerr. Um, it's a piece about uh, the All Blacks, but it's lessons in leadership, essentially, um, 15 lessons. And it's an amazing book. Again, I'm a rugby fan. Um, I've always been fascinated by the high performance setup and that high performance environment. And the book marries sport and, um, and leadership. And yeah, I highly recommend it. Sounds great. Do you have a mantra in business? If so, what would it be? Invest in your people. 
there's there's just no substitute for it. I mean, I know we're here today talking about me and 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 my story, but Olitico is nothing without the, the team of nine that exists there now and the more you put into your team, the more you invest in them and I don't just mean investing in them in terms of like their education and other practical things that you can do, but just investing your time. The more you invest in people, and this is very much true outside of work too, um, the more you get back. When you're finished with Alitico, whenever or however that might be, when you've sold it to, you know, Elon Musk or somebody for uh, billions in the future, um, what would you like people to say about what you did and how you did it? I'd like people to say that he left it in a better place. That the organizations that we have as clients are better organizations for having Olitico working with them. That the people who have worked with us in the past, who work with us now and that will work with us in the future have have developed, have grown and that Olitico created an environment in which people could grow and could, could build. So far, and you're still very much in the early stages of your career, but reflecting on that, what would you say is your biggest mistake or regret? What would you do differently? Probably a failure to invest in people. And I think in truth, actually conflict avoidance. So um, one of the best things I ever did was start to work with a coach. And um, what I realized was that I was avoiding conflict. I was worried about what it might be like if I sat down one on one with one of the people on my team and maybe they were unhappy. So in in total truth, I avoided those conversations and people left. You know, that's what people will do if, if people don't enjoy what they're doing or they don't feel maybe as supported as they could be. And I know that over the last 15 years I have made that mistake. And and it's it's not a regret because I think you have to go through it. You have to learn from an experience like that. It, it makes you better ultimately. But it was a really hard lesson to learn. It's really hard when someone who's really good comes to you and says, I'm going to go work somewhere else. And and certainly what I learned was that frequent, open, honest communication with your team and not fearing conflict, not fearing feedback, positive and negative, um, has, has been transformative. So certainly... That was a mistake. It's one I've worked really hard on. It's one I continue to work really hard on. Um, and it's uh, yeah, it's been a lesson learned. And a final one, which kind of feeds into the answer you've given there, but you may have a totally different answer. What piece of advice would you give to an entrepreneur or a manager or an executive running a business? Find a great coach. Um you know, I, I think I didn't truly appreciate the importance of a great coach until I found one. And yet, when I look at sport, you look at the best players in the world, the number one players in their field globally, no matter how good they get, day in, day out, they work with a coach. They are constantly looking to improve. And I think it, it wasn't until I found one and started to see the impact they could have that I realised how important they are. So, yeah, find a great coach and, and work hard with them. Well, Stephen, it's been great to have you on the podcast and hear from 
the front line of corporate and social media worlds. I, I wish you all the very best in the future and with your plans for the company. Stephen O'Leary, founder and CEO of Olitico. We hope you are enjoying the EY podcast, CEO Outlook series. Remember, you can catch previous interviews we've done with CEOs like Paul Reed of the HSE, David McRedmond of Unpost, Tony Smurfett of Smurfett Kappa Group, and Anne Herity of CPL. Until the next time, bye. EY, building a better working world.